Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, today we will continue on, uh, again, our journey of trying to understand war and peace. And I've been replaying over the last few weeks a number of old classic audio recordings from Archbishop Sheen uh, when he was then Monsignor Sheen. And, of course, the year was 1944, and uh, Archbishop Sheen was talking about peace. And uh, he wrote a beautiful book uh, in that year of 1944 called The Seven Pillars of Peace. And uh, it's actually included in my recent book uh, called War and Peace, an Anthology, available through Sophia Press. And so, uh, again, I think people are starting to say to themselves, you know, what he said and wrote in 1944 is very much appropriate for today. And the wisdom contained in those writings and what you'll hear in this audio recording is uh, something that we can use uh, today in the year 2022 to bring about world peace. And so uh, the lesson that Fulton Sheen will share with us is simply titled The International uh, Condition of World Peace. And, of course, it is uh, global peace that we're all searching for. And, of course, we know there's war in the Ukraine and there's war in other places of the world, but that whole idea of world peace. And so, uh, again, Fulton Sheen has this lively discussion, and I think there's lots for us to learn. So we'll uh, share that during the first half of this broadcast. And then during the second half, we will share a reflection Fulton Sheen gave uh, just simply entitled uh, Fools for Christ's Sake. And uh, we are all called to be fools for Christ. And uh, who better to teach us about being fools than uh, Archbishop Sheen? And so looking forward to that reflection. So may I invite you, as I always do, just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he talks about the international condition of world peace. Please enjoy. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen now addresses the Catholic Hour audience. The title of Monsignor Sheen's talk is The International Condition of World Peace. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent. And is our custom each year, we will then turn from the social order to the individual in order to prepare our souls for Easter. Today we discuss the basic moral principle of the international order, namely, the world is one because it was made by one Lord and is governed by one law. All men are one because, as St. Paul said, 
God hath made all mankind to dwell upon the face of the earth. To unite men, there must be something outside men. Just as to pack a bag, one must be outside the bag. A moral law outside of nations to which all nations can appeal and to which they must submit even when the decision goes against them is the only sound basis of world peace. That is why there will never be one world until we all learn to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. The only alternative to one world based on one Lord and one moral law is to have many worlds and many lords, where each nation is its own law and its own God. Like the workers on the Tower of Babel, each nation will then speak a different language and live by a different code, and having not in common the project of world peace like the Tower of Babel will end in confusion worse confounded. In that case, there would be no way to decide whether Japanese atrocities were wrong and American humanitarianism was right, except by a war between these gods in which might decides what is right. To all who have eyes, it should be as clear as the stones in the road that the day we make a godless world, we will also make a loveless world. We have had political expressions of this moral law in the fine traditions of America, in the Atlantic Charter, in the Four Freedoms, and in these magnificent words of the State Department which make one feel proud of being American. Namely, unless the relation between nations are governed by the rule of reason and of justice and of law, the basis of modern civilization itself cannot be preserved. Because Americans generally accept the moral and religious basis of an international order, they are embarrassed by attacks on religion, whether official or unofficial. Some inspired by the very best sentiments protest against such attacks on religion on the ground that those who make them forget that politics is separate from religion and that it hurts international relations to confuse them. This criticism is based on a 19th century attitude which no longer fits 20th century facts. Limiting ourselves solely to facts, during the 19th century, religion and politics established a kind of modus vivendi or tacit agreement not to interfere in the other's domain. It was an arrangement like a husband and a wife who live peaceably so long as the husband stays out of the kitchen. But what actually happened was that while religion was staying in the parlor, irreligion, the next-door neighbor, came in and stole the political wife. In other words... While politics asked religion not to interfere, politics became irreligious. First with communism, then with 
the fascists, and finally with the Nazis. And that is why the church condemned all three. And the church condemned all three ideologies, not because they were bad political systems, but because they were bad religions. In other words, the new politics is a religion, a false mysticism. Nothing today is secular. The temporal smothers the spiritual. This war is therefore more a religious war than it is a nationalistic war. It is a conflict between two totally different philosophies of life. Never before in the history of Christianity has the cause of God and man, of religion and freedom, been as nearly identical as it is at this very hour. As Joan of Arc fought simultaneously for the kingdom of God and for France, so America is fighting in an analogical sense for a political ideal which is essentially a moral ideal. The tragedy of attacks on religion within our camp, then, is not that they may endanger our military success but that they reveal a disparity of ideals as different as night and day. There is therefore not much point in reminding the enemies of religion that religion and politics are separate because to them, politics is religion in the sense that politics is anti-religious and admits of no other law or code or morality than itself. From quite another point of view, there is such a thing as looking at disturbances in the international moral order through the eyes of faith. There is nothing new in the world. There are only the same old things happening to new people. The gospel is the prehistory of the church. No sword is ever lifted against Christ's church but that Christ feels the wound. Of each new agony and woe, he can say, my pain, my grief, my death. Hence, when I read of attacks launched against religion, or if I hear it said that the church is opposed to the freedom-loving peoples of the world, and that there could be no peace in Europe until religion is crushed, somehow or other my mind immediately begins to think of the day the Son of the Most High God was standing on that sunlit balustrade of the fortress Antonio and the same charges were hurled against him. Remember the charges? We have found this man perverting our nation, refusing to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he is Christ the King. That was a roundabout way in those less clever days of name-calling, of saying that Christ was a fascist. They were all lies. But what difference did it make? 
did not Hitler say, you can never get people to believe little lies. But they will always believe big ones. That boasted of his power, the words of the Savior still ring above him in a pain of hope. You would not have this power unless it were given to you from above. And then when I hear the enemies of religion say, the church is hated. It's hated in Belgium. It's hated in Italy, in France, and Holland, in Great Britain, and in the United States. I remember how our Lord foretold that this very day would come to pass. Remember his words? If the world hate you, know ye that it hath hated me before you. If you had been of the world, the world would love its own. But because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Yes, he was hated too. And once there echoed in his ears a shout, Crucify! Who cried for his death? The masses! Everyone! Everyone hated him! But who moved the masses to hate? The leaders, the ancients, the makers of public opinion, in the simple language of the gospel, quoting St. Matthew, they persuaded the people. St. Matthew here reads like today's newspaper. The people are still being persuaded. These attacks against the church will continue. For in this day, the devil has a long rope. But hold solidly to your moral principles. As Washington said, no nation can survive without religion and morality. And if we lose morality, we endanger the nation. The disintegration of any civilization or a crisis in history such as we are in today bears within itself the threat of an interregnum of barbarism. As in the physical order, the putrid remains of the unburied dead create a pestilence. So the disintegration of the secular civilization through which we have just lived and which was strong only because it lived on the heritage of Christianity creates the possibility of chaos. Secularism left to itself is really only a transition between a culture that once was Christian and one which will be anti-Christian and barbarian. And by barbarism we mean the destruction of moral values 
or the repudiation of the funded heritage of culture. I do not mean that the barbarism of this new era will be like that of the Huns of old. No. It will be very different. It will be technical. It will be scientific. It will be secular. It will be propagandized. This barbarism will not come from without, but from within. For barbarism is not outside of us. It is beneath us. Older civilizations were destroyed by imported barbarism. Modern civilization breeds its own. Pray then. Pray for the world. Pray for the church. And pray for the enemies of the church. That is why, as long as we've been talking about this moral order, we have asked you to make a holy hour every day. Jews, Protestants, Catholics, set aside an hour a day. Now that Lent is coming on, may every Catholic who hears my voice attend daily Mass. And if it is possible, extend that Mass for half an hour and make a holy hour in reparation for the sins of the world. For what happens between you and God when you are on your knees is of vital importance to the world. Pray for Russia. Every morning, every priest throughout the world prays for Russia. Those prayers we say at the end of every low mass are for that intention. Dostoevsky foretold a day of his own country Namely one, he said, in which after it had passed through a diabolical anti-God stage, his Russia would one day sit at the feet of Christ and learn his gospel. And to the dawn of that day, our eyes expectantly look wherein nations can live in one world because there is one moral law and one Lord. These are hard days for the church churches maligned and smeared and misunderstood but really all that it is trying to do in this world at this moment is to preserve the negatives of a moral order as the warring nations tear up the photographs the church is no more interested in political regimes than was its master Christ in his church rides through the world, not on a war horse, conquering all before him, but on an animal which is the symbol of docility and peace. And he rides it into the very jaws of death. Hold fast to your God. Keep your faith. Your church. The time is now. Five minutes to twelve.
We are in the valley of decision. Either the bloom or the blight. A new crime is arising in the world today. Be prepared for it. The crime of being a Christian. The crime of believing in God. So help us, God. God love you. And now we invite all those listening to join Monsignor Sheen in offering up this prayer in time of war. O Lord Jesus Christ, who in thy mercy hearest the prayers of sinners, pour forth we beseech thee all grace and blessing upon our country and its citizens. We pray in particular for the President, for our Congress, for all our soldiers, for all who defend us in ships, whether on the seas or in the skies, for all who are suffering the hardships of war. We pray for all who are in peril or in danger. Bring us all after the troubles of this life into the haven of peace and reunite us all together forever, O oh dear Lord, in thy glorious heavenly kingdom. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I hope you enjoyed that presentation. And I uh, shared with you a little bit of uh, Fulton Sheen praying with the audience. Uh, Like he did every broadcast, he would recommend that everyone pray a holy hour, no matter if they were Jew, Protestant, or Catholic. And of course, he um, invited everyone to pray for their country. And I think that prayer would still be very much appropriate today. Uh, And so I thought I would share that with you. And uh, speaking of prayer, we have to uh, pray for peace in the world. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we're a little bit guilty in that we like to watch the news, like to see what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine and other war-torn areas to see if there's improvement. But are we doing our part in saying our prayers and actually praying for peace, but really praying? Uh, yes, sometimes we will just, um, you know, give a, a little salutation to God saying, please take care of it, Lord, please take care of it. But are we really praying? And I think this is where Fulton Sheen really uh, test us. He, he almost tests our love by saying, would you be willing to give an hour of your day 
where you just sit and uh, be in the presence of our Lord and listen to him. Uh, of course, speak to him and, and give your prayers of petition, but listen to him, but spend that hour. And for many of us, it's difficult. Uh, we tend to not even have enough time in the day to do what we want to do, but yet Fulton Sheen was challenging us to carve out that hour each day. And so maybe that's something we can work on, is just to truly be intentional, intentional in prayer, and do that. So, all right. Uh, we will, of course, uh, continue this um, lesson plan where Fulton Sheen is uh, teaching us to just um, uh, be a little bit light. You know, he there's a time for seriousness, and there's a time for being a little bit lighthearted. And I think, of course, this topic uh, that he's going to share, uh, where he entitles it, um, being a fool for Christ. Um, I think, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we can laugh a little bit, and then other times it's it's a bit sad. But still, at the end of the day, uh, we need to become fools for Christ, to bring souls to Christ, and to uh, teach the world that um, there is a joy in following Jesus. And so I would invite you, as I always do, just to sit back and relax and enjoy uh, Fulton Sheen as he talks about being a fool for Christ. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, teach us to be fools for Christ's sake. We ask this gift through the foolishness of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. T.S. Eliot prophesied that the world would not end with a bang, but with a whimper. We will be played out. Bourdaloo suggested that at the end of time, the earth would give a great yawn, and the devil would come out of his mouth. And another poet, Abramson, said, Some men die by the sword, and others go down in flames. But most men perish inch by inch in play and little games. And then in a lighter mood, I think it was Kaufman, Kenneth Kaufman. I think my soul is a tame old duck dabbling around in barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings. But sometimes when the north wind sings and the wild ones hurtle overhead, it remembers something lost and dead and cocks a wary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. It's fairly content with the state it's in, but it isn't the duck it might have been. Some Boy Scouts were 
playing first aid, and tags would be put on each of them, wounded in the arm, and foot hurt, and so forth, waiting for the first aid group to come. One of the boys had a tag on him, serious bleeding. He waited for a long period of time, and then he added to the tag, bled to death, gone home. So we are face to face with taking life in America rather easily. And we have to do something about it. Remember our blessed Lord in the story of the fig tree. We recall it here in Luke, the 13th chapter. Man had a fig tree growing in the vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, but found none. And so he said to the vine dresser, Look here. For the last three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why should it go on using up the soil? Why encumbereth it the ground? Why is energy declining? There are two theories about energy. One is that we have just a certain amount of it. Like money in the bank. And when it's spent, we're exhausted. The other theory is that there's a blockage of the energy. And energy itself can be renewed. As a matter of fact, we never get the second wind until we've used up the first. We never enjoy the swim until after the shock of the first cold plunge. And hypnotists have proven that if it is suggested to a man that he is strong, he can lift a weight 60% higher than normal. If it is suggested to him by hypnotism that he's weak, he can only lift 40% less. I think the secret of all energy is that as sanctity declines, energy declines. When the love of Christ begins to peter out, then we lose energy. Now we've suggested the remedy of wasting some time, and that's going to be our appeal. Waste some time for Christ's sake. And here are three examples in the scripture about wasting time. First, the woman who came into Simon's house. She broke the vessel. No calculated less or more. Just the sheer ecstasy of giving. Not holding back. And that was the kind of foolishness that was praised by the Lord. And another instance quite remarkable is from the Old Testament. David had gone back to his own native town of Bethlehem. And I suppose, like every man who returns to his early home, 
There's a nostalgia for tastes and smells and scenes. And that was not unusual for David. What he yearned for was waters from the well of Bethlehem. And as the Holy Spirit tells the story in First Chronicles, Chapter 11, verse 13, I hope. Yes. One day, David was in the stronghold, and a Philistine garrison held Bethlehem. A longing came over David, and he exclaimed, Only I could have a drink of water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. And at this, three strong men made their way through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem, and brought it to David. Now, what did David do with it? David refused to drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, God forbid that I should do such a thing. Can I drink the blood of these men? They have brought it at the risk of their lives. If David had drunk of that water, the Holy Scripture would not be telling the story. It was something that was too precious to keep for himself. When we keep certain things for ourselves, they spoil. We keep flesh too much for ourselves, and it turns into lust. Keep money too much for ourselves and it turns into avarice. Keep learning too much for ourselves and it turns into conceit. Keep time too much for ourselves and we waste our lives. I wonder if at the end of days the slow process of just wasting away is not due to the way we live during life. Have we been sufficiently wasteful of the gifts that God has given to us, whatever they happen to be, and particularly time? Just think of how much time a priest wastes in the course of a day. Over a daily newspaper, when the only things you can be absolutely sure are true are the sporting page and the Wall Street quotations. If, for example, the Redskins beat the Rams, you don't say, oh, this is a Republican paper. I'll go out and see what a Democratic paper has to say. But the time that's wasted, too, on useless reading. We say, well, I don't have time for an hour. Actually, we do not have time for anything else. And when this hour is wasted before the Lord, then it will be remembered like the water from the well of Bethlehem. There therefore has to be in our lives a kind of an impulsiveness, a giving that doesn't measure. We perhaps just reckon our lives and our time and our energy a little bit too mathematically. Let's go back to one of the great scenes in the gospel after our blessed Lord had multiplied 
the loaves and the fishes at Capernaum. Here the apostles were caught up in the glow of all of this acclaim. Christ was king. They called him king, they called him a prophet, but they never called him a priest who would die for them. That they rejected. But it was wonderful for the apostles to see our Lord acclaimed as king and as prophet. They were ready now to make him a bread king. Maybe he could drive out the Romans. And because the apostles were caught up in this enthusiasm, the Lord says, get over the other side of the lake. Leave here. They would be spoiled. And they start rowing across the lake. Our Lord goes up the mountaintop. The night passes, there's a storm, fog, rain. It is three o'clock in the morning. They are rowing against the wind and frightened. The Lord watches them all the time. We sometimes think that the Lord does not see us in storms. And the Lord comes toward them, walking on the water. They do not recognize him. They thought he was a specter, a ghost. And Mark tells us the reason. They did not understand the miracle of the loaves. They did not understand this unseen presence of Christ in the bread of life. So he was a ghost, a specter. And in their fear, our blessed Lord assures them, fear not, it is I. Whenever I quote that text, Noli Timere Ego Sum, I am reminded of an artist at the time of Leo XIII who painted his portrait. And it was not a good one, and Leo knew it was not, but the artist insisted that Leo should autograph it, and Leo wrote at the bottom, Noli Timere, Ego Sum. So our Lord tells them now, Fear not, it is I. Here comes the impulsiveness of a great man. A fool. Lord, bid me walk on the waters. What stupidity. Walk on waters. Can you imagine what must have gone on in that boat when Peter lifted up his right foot to put it on the water? Thomas must have said to him, You believe anything, don't you, Peter? Judas said, How much are you getting for it? Bartholomew, you going to join the circus? Andrew, you've always been an idiot. And John said, You damn fool, get back! 
walked. He really walked on the water. Because the Lord said, Come, come. Believe the incredible, and you can do the impossible. It is our want of faith that holds us back. But then he sank. Why did he begin to sink? The gospel gives us the reason. He took account of the winds. He began reading some surveys. It was established statistically, 99 and 44, 100% of mankind cannot walk on waters. And all of the incredulities were in the winds. And he took his eyes off Christ. And Peter began to sink. This was a very strong manifestation of faith. And our Lord evidently expected it of his own. Because when he came down from the Mount of the Transfiguration, here at the base of the mountain was a distraught father with the possessed son. The church was there. The church. There were nine apostles. They had all tried to drive out the devil. And the father went to our Lord and asked him to drive it out. And then the church said to him, Why couldn't we do it? Our Lord said, because you have no faith. That kind is driven not only by prayer and fasting. Paul, therefore, was right in asking for foolishness of the cross, as he told the Corinthians who needed that lesson so very much. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are like men condemned to death in the arena, a spectacle to the whole universe, angels as well as men. And then this magnificent translation here in Second Corinthians, the second chapter verses 14 to 16. But thanks be to God who continually leads us about captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Captives in Christ's triumphal procession. When any captives were taken by the Roman power they would always be brought into Rome after the conqueror. That was part of his glory. Now St. Paul says, we're captives. A 
of Christ the conqueror, captives in Christ's triumphant procession. In the last audience that I had with Pope Paul, I said, you're well named, Paul, because you're stoned as Paul was, stoned by your own, as Paul was stoned as he went from Lystra to Derby to Antioch of Pisidia. Yes, he said, I open my mail at midnight, and in almost every letter is a thorn. And when I lay my head at night on the pillow, I lay it on a crown of thorns. But, he said, I cannot tell you what ineffable joy I have in being able to fill up in my poor flesh the sufferings that are wanting, wanting to the passion of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, applying this to ourselves, we have sick in our parishes. We have suffering in our cities. When we look at a sick person or one wounded, or infected, or cancerous. What do we see? If we have developed that vision of seeing Christ in the Eucharist, we'll see Christ in the cross and the sick. He is in our faithful, who are consciously offering up all of their sufferings in union with our blessed Lord. And we all are edified by certain ones whom we know, who say, well, I offer this up for my sins and for the sake of the church. G. Studdard Kennedy, the Episcopalian chaplain of World War I, who was so sick and tired of the mud and the shell holes and the shocks, asked the question, how can God who has made such a cruel world have love in his heart for men? The sorrows of God must be hard to bear if he really has love in his heart. And the hardest part in the world to play must surely be God's part. I wonder if God can be sorrowing still and has been all these years. I wonder if that's what it really means. Not only that he came once to earth and wept and was crucified, not just that he suffered once for all to save us from our sins and then went up to his throne on high to wait till his heaven begins, but what if he came to this earth to show by the paths of pain that he trod the blistering flame of eternal shame that burns in the heart of God? And he goes on to say, he begged his boy not to go to sea. His mother pleaded not to go to sea, but he went. He had to have his own way. Well, maybe that's how it is with God. His sons have got to be free. So the Father God goes sorrowing still 
for the world what's gone to see. For I'm beginning to see, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, you've done it unto me. So it isn't just only the crown of thorns, but it's pierced and torn God's head. He knows the feel of a bullet, too, and his head the touch of lead. So Christ is suffering, not only in those who have the faith, but he is suffering in those who do not know him. And this is their salvation. I have been in mission work for 16 years and have been in it much longer by affection. I was never very much concerned with the theological problem of what used to be called the salvation of pagans. Baptism of desire has a nicety of a theological answer, but it did not come into being until the 11th century. But traveling around the world and visiting leper colonies and seeing starving people fight vultures in Latin America, seeing starving mothers with starving children strapped to their backs in India, seeing 250,000 people a night sleeping in the streets of Calcutta, seeing all of the hunger and want and indigence and pain Below this 30th parallel, I came to have a new vision of the world. And traveling through all those worlds, I never saw so many Christs in my life. Christ, yes. But you say, they don't know him. No, they do not consciously know him. But he is in them, as long as they do not rebel, he is in them by their sufferings. I was hungry. I was sick. I was naked. I was homeless. When? 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 No, they didn't know. But Christ was in them. And remember, these words were said to the nations, to the Gentiles. And that's how they're saved. And we will be surprised to see that many of those who have not known Christ as we have known him may be above us in the kingdom of heaven because they were always with his cross even though it was unwitting, Christ was with them. As he was with the pagan peoples who were pure, though they did not know, for example, that they had a model who was the Blessed Mother. So we plead then for a greater use of energy. Less wasted time. More spent energies. More intellect poured out. Energy poured out. 
And then God gives us strength. In the divine order, we get it only when we spend it. In the natural order, we have to keep it to have it. Given it will be given to you. Date et dabitur. And when there's this foolishness, then there's a tremendous transformation of heart and soul. Uh, one of the great characters of Russian literature, an, an evil man, Raskolnikov, the very word itself, Roskol, was protest. Raskolnikov had killed an old woman, not for any pleasure, not for any money, just simply because there was no distinction between virtue and vice. He lived with a prostitute. Sonia was her name. And one day he said to Sonia in a fit of anger, one of three things is going to happen to you. You will either jump off a bridge, you will go mad, or you will cut your throat. And Sonia picked up the 11th chapter of John and began reading the resurrection of Lazarus. In other words, there's always an open door, the open door of love. We have pleaded then in this retreat and centered it around one foolish act. No judgment is to be made of this retreat except the change that is made, the radical change. We're busy. We have no time for anything else, so we have to be fools and spend the time. And then we get back wisdom. And what wisdom there is from communing with the Eucharistic Lord. We're captives. Captives of his love, captives of his duty. In the immediate answering of sick calls, in the thorough preparation for sermons, the kindliness to the unlovable people and the projection of the Christ spirit to those who would be unforgiving. All this is foolishness. But if you keep up this hour, you will be very thankful in your hearts, not just to me, but that the Lord was so good to you. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I hope you enjoyed that reflection entitled Fools for Christ's Sake. And it came from a priestly retreat that Fulton Sheen gave. Uh, but I think it's still very appropriate for us. Uh, we all have our uh, priesthood, I like to say, through our baptism. And again, there is a lot to learn there. And um, But again, that message of the holy hour, spending that time with the Lord, uh, to listen to him. Uh, that came through in that talk. 
uh, as it did in the first talk today. And I love uh, going back to that first talk about peace, uh, where Fulton Sheen, when he was ending the talk, he said, uh, there's going to be a new crime, a new crime in this world, and it's the crime of being a Christian a crime of loving God. And so uh, if uh, you had to present yourself, of course, to uh, the authorities, uh, would you be found guilty of being uh, in love with God and uh, following Christ? So that new crime of being a Christian. So again, that is words uh, to live by. And uh, you can say to your friends, I'm a criminal. I'm a criminal. But I'm a criminal in that I love God and I love the teachings of Christ. So, all right. Uh, what else can I share with you as we send off uh, to uh, go about our week? And uh, let us continue to pray for one another. Please pray for me and know that I will pray for you. And uh, please pray again for uh, our humble radio apostolate here. And, um, you know, we're doing what we can. And uh, again, many of us are volunteers. And so we rely on your prayerful and financial support. So uh, please assist us where you can. And of course, those words of Fulton Sheen, uh, the foolishness of the cross. Uh, may I invite you each week to uh, pick up a cross and just meditate on the crucifix and the great love that God had for you, that he died on the cross to redeem us of our sin. And so, uh, again, the foolishness of the cross, again, the world doesn't get it, but we get it uh, because we know it is the love that saves. And so uh, let us rejoice in the cross and let us, uh, as Fulton Sheen reminded us so many times in his books, to uh, put a crucifix on your desk or uh, on your night table, but put it somewhere where you'll see it and do it for three days and you'll be amazed at the change it will have in your life. And so uh, I call it the three-day test of uh, just having a crucifix with you. And so it's amazing. All right. We'll see you all next week. And until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith here on Radio Maria Canada.